I'll just do the quick intro right now. Uh, hello and welcome back to the Comic Books Matter podcast. I am your host Jesse, and with us today is the man with the best Dan DeVito impression, uh, impersonation, an endless source of information, and the host of One Balloon, John Suntries. Jesse, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for being on such a small uh, show at the moment. I'm I'm really happy and excited that you're like my third guest on here because I've been listening to Word Bloom for years now. And yeah. uh, honestly, it's half of what you, like most things that you do with Word Bloom inspired the show mixed in with another podcast. I'm like, I just want to talk to people about comics because it's so much fun. Dude, that's why I started doing it. What's the other podcast? I'm always interested in hearing um, what uh, other podcasts people listen to. There, uh, let me look up the name. It just actually just ended, which uh, kind of bummed me out. But it's, oh. a, it's a book podcast. And basically he brought in uh, authors and talked to them about the books that kind of changed their lives. Let me, yeah. uh, I'm looking on my phone right now for it. So give me one second. No problem. No problem. I'll, uh, as you're looking it up, I'll, t- I'll say that um, uh, my intent was with Word Balloon uh, because I do love comics and have for so long, uh, treat them with the same respect that novelists and filmmakers and TV people get because we know how sophisticated the stories have gotten. And, uh, you know, they're, they were due uh, recognition and uh, promotion more than what they normally get. You know, God, how many articles, I'm sure you're the same way, have you read that start zip, bam, pow, guess what? Comic books aren't for kids anymore. And we're just like, it's like, yeah, thanks. Uh, we knew that in 1985, you know, yeah. it's, but, but by all means, you know, go on. So, uh, you know, you get tired of that kind of coverage. And I, I wanted to provide a forum where, uh, you know, uh, writers and artists can talk about what they do and uh, their storytelling is just as vital as, uh, you know, the other mediums I mentioned. Yeah, of course. And like, that's the, the biggest thing is what I love about listening to your show overall is that, hearing the ways that like uh, the best example of this is uh the stuff with matt fraction it's how he looks at comics as not for kids in a lot of ways and that's how he comes up with his ideas and one of the best books right now is jimmy olsen and literally a kid could read that right now i hear you but it's so much better if you're an adult (laughs) right right and and i mean matt matt always like looks at um the pacing of comic book storytelling and the design and, you know, decides, oh, maybe I can do something with this. And I know, you know, he probably got inspired by all those Silver Age uh, books that would have two or three stories per issue back then. And, you know, he looked at that format and it was, you know, just made his mind explode. And, oh, we can do this in a bunch of different ways. And he certainly got the right artist in Steve Lieber, who really is carrying the heavy, you know, lifting in that uh, in that uh, combination. But no, it's uh, it's fantastic. And again, it's Jimmy lends himself to that kind of storytelling. They were always crazy, bizarre uh, stories. I mean, that's Mort Weisinger, the guy who uh, edited the Superman books. Uh, people look at him now and they're like, oh, aren't these covers goofy or aren't these promises goofy? And actually, Mort Weisinger knew he was making a comic book or editing comic books that were appropriate for the times. And he was just reflecting what was happening in pop culture. So as ridiculous as it seemed to have Jimmy also be a caveman beetle, he was responding to the Beatle craze and just throwing a little, you know, sci-fi kind of spin on it. This was the days of, you know, 1 million BC, Raquel Welch and the caveman fur bikini that she became so famous for. And or having uh, Pat Boone in a Superman comic, comic book, the old 50s uh, teenage singer. Or there was a big reality show on uh, in 50s and 60s television, Candid Camera, 
and the host was Alan Funt. And at one point, uh, he would surprise people and almost like punk. It really actually, Candy Camera was really kind of the punk of its day. And, you know, have, uh, in, I remember that cover was Superman changing uh, from Clark Kent to Superman in the phone booth and Alan Funt showing up with a camera. Smile, you're on Candy Camera. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's what he was doing. And again, looking back now without those, uh, what were modern touchstones of the time, people look at that something like, what the hell's going on? Why is Superman so weird? But yeah. that's what he was doing. Uh, and before like, I forget, the other podcast was, uh, but that's another story. Mm, uh, okay. Um, but, but, uh, speaking of Canada camera, it's really funny. Cause I was, at, there was a, it was either this American life or a radio lab episode where they talked about that uh, show. Sure. How it started as a radio show. That's right. And Candid microphone. Yes. Yeah. To me, it's so wild that that was a concept <laughs> that nowadays everybody would just believe it was faked. Sure. Even Kim right. camera that people would believe it was faked now, but like the think that people are like, Oh yeah, hidden microphone, totally illegal. Totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. And, and truly, um, I forget the name of the, the, the cable channel that runs the, the television version of Candid Camera. Um, it's, it's a, a, a cable company that is uh, directed towards uh, Jewish lifestyle. Mm. And uh, Alan Fun was a Jewish uh, man. But it's, if you watch, honestly, it's great because they act these things out. And I mean, you could tell these people really had no idea they were on camera. And they would be the craziest things. Like they had a car split in two. And and like in the road and like take uh, two different directions, for, uh, you know, left and right at the same time. And just the people's, expl- you know, looks on their faces and stuff. And that's a mild comparison. I mean, yeah. just crazy stuff. It was a great show. Yeah. Uh, growing up, honestly, uh, spending so much time with my grandparents and even in the house, my house in general, because uh, my parents are a bit older. But in general, we just watch reruns of that stuff all the time. Like, uh, that's great. I have that's so many great. friends who don't know, like old black and white TV. And I'm like, what do you do with your life? <laughs> How do you not remember some of this stuff? I, this is sad. I taught, uh, I was teaching, I've been teaching radio production, audio production at a college here in Chicago. And I had them before the pandemic hit, um, make a Seinfeld uh, commercial, radio commercial. And one kid came to me and said, 19 years old. And he's like, so the Seinfeld show, was it a sketch comedy show? And I'm like, no, it was a sitcom. He's like, well, I've never seen it. And I had 12 (laughs) kids in the class and I'm like, how many of you have, have, are aware of what Seinfeld was? Five hands. How many of you actually watched this show? One hand. And I'm like, my God. I go, you guys are lucky I didn't make you cut up I Love Lucy. Then yeah. You really would have been in trouble. What's funny is like my TV knowledge. We're all, way off topic, but this is what I love about word balloon in general. So I want to keep on going down this thread. Tangents are welcome. Absolutely, yeah. man. Um, my TV knowledge is like all from like the 50s, close to the 80s. And then the 90s, early 2000s are just a no man's land. Ha. Because it's just the way I was raised and the stuff that I was allowed to watch or wasn't allowed to watch. And then I, I, grew up, I grew up in the 90s and then early 2000s. And then after I was allowed to basically watch whatever I wanted, all that is now filled in. So I'm going through right now. It's funny. You were talking, I can't remember which episode it was on, but you were talking about Deep Space Nine. And that's literally the first Star Trek show I've started from the beginning. And I'm that's watching great. all the way through right now. Um, it, I, it's Go ahead. I'm sorry, man. Uh, I just had a friend who's a huge Star Trek fan, and she came up to me and she looked at me. And she's like, you, "Deep Space Nine. That's the one you should watch." I'm like, "Okay, that's all I'm watching then." Well, yeah, it's the best. I think it's the best one of the spinoffs. Um, and I love next. I mean, I love them all. As I always say, I mean, they could have a TV show called Star Trek Klingon uh, Latrine Cleaning, and I'd be like, "What night is it on?" I'll be there. And I blew off like quality shows 
from uh, the 2000s like West Wing because it was on opposite Voyager and Enterprise. And I'm like, I, I can't miss Star Trek. You don't understand. Yeah. I've been watching Star Trek for 50 years. But I think Deep Space Nine, uh, especially now, really can resonate because it's about religion. It's about uh, terrorism. And uh, depending on your uh, side of the political coin, you could say that, uh, you know, the Bajorans were either freedom fighters or they were terrorists. The Cardassians certainly regarded them as terrorists. And it asks some really big questions. And there's a lot of conflict on Deep Space Nine. And that kind of flew in the face of Roddenberry's feeling that, oh, no, 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 by, you know, the 23rd century, Earth got its crap together and everything. I don't know if I can swear on this uh, podcast. Uh, I don't... You can, uh, feel free to, whatever feels All right, right fine. So, yeah, they, you know, he's like, yeah, we, we should have our shit together by the 23rd century. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, no more, no more war between countries and we're all one people and stuff. And I get it. And then certainly for the 60s, that was a wonderful idea to put out there. But, you know, story comes from conflict. Mm -hmm. and, and Deep Space Nine had it. And I know there were a lot of purists that are like, oh, this isn't what I like. And even Major Roddenberry, uh, Roddenberry's uh, widow, was like, I don't think Gene would like what you guys are doing with the show right now. All I can say is I, I think the show endures. Uh, also, um, you know, they really went into connected storytelling. Uh, there wasn't binge watching, obviously, back then. But uh, certainly as, as the seasons progressed and they really had big storylines for the entire seasons, uh, it's a very bingeable show. And I think it ages the best of all of the spinoffs right now. Yeah, I mean, we just, uh, because I've been watching it in the afternoon. After that, my parents found out I started watching it. They, they, wa they love Star Trek, too. And I remember it being on all the time when I was a kid, but I just never, I don't remember any of it. So uh, when they found out I started watching it, my mom's like, well, now you're going to watch it with us. Every night during dinner, we watch an episode at least. And um, we just hit that two-parter where uh, the changelings in, maybe invaded Earth. And the, that, yes. whole, that whole two-parter is 100% coronavirus right now. Right. Like the way they act, the way everybody's acting, the, the way sure. the politics are in that episode, my parents were just making conclude, like correlations with it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that's it. Absolutely, man. And, and fake news. And, uh, yeah. and uh, I mean, just the idea of a military coup uh, within the Federation and stuff. It's it's fascinating. And again, yeah, I mean, you're right. We are kind of under not martial law per se, but certainly there is this strong advisory of staying in. And from this 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 health problem, what state are you in, Jesse? Other than I'm uh, I'm in uh, California. Okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, and there like, you go, man. And I'm in Illinois, so I mean, yeah. you know, it's no, I, you know, I, and again, I think we're I, luckily. I think we're in a couple states where I, I personally, and I don't, we don't have to get into politics, but I agree with my governor, and I and I agree with what uh, Gavin Newsom was doing. I don't know what part of California you're. In. Yeah, I'm, I'm more on the the red side, but it, it might me okay. myself. Yeah, I I agree with a lot of the stuff that's going on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I just think, I mean, I, I get it. Everyone's really frustrated and antsy and want to get back to normal as quickly as possible. But if you don't know um, how many people have it, how, how can you make those decisions? I mean, you mm -hmm. have to, the testing has to happen. And I, forgive me, my last political comment is, can you imagine if the president during World War II were just like, uh, yeah, we know it's a really big crisis, but um this is really a state-by-state -state decision. Good luck with the Germans and the Japanese. So we'll talk to you soon. And yeah, that's no, the, of course. That just seems to be the attitude. Whereas Roosevelt, he's, you know, the, the president has this power to demand that industries stop whatever they're making and no, focus on today's problem. And back then it was auto industry. You're not going to make cars for the next couple of years. You're making planes, you're making tanks, you're making Jeeps because we need them. Mm -hmm. And all the big auto companies are like, 
we got to do it. We have no choice. It, it, it has to be done. And again, I don't understand this kind of like that, that these demands aren't being made. And I think the companies would be willing to do them. Just give them that direction or just even the idea of whatever supplies there are. Okay. Who needs this stuff the most? Yeah. They get the first wave. It, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And like having uh, older parents, it's like one of those things where I'm like, I don't want them going out, but I can't tell them they stay inside. Sure. So no, it's I like, get that too. if yeah. I can protect them as much as I can, because I'm technically an essential worker. So I still go to work five days a week and I commute and everything. Wow. Um, but there's only 10 of us in my office. So like, we don't, we're not near each other. We're not doing anything. So um, I'm trying to be as safe as possible myself. So like, I think it's important. I understand man. I was, I was working in radio and unfortunately they had cutbacks for the job that I was doing and I got let go. But prior to that, um, for the first several weeks, uh, we had skeleton crews and we kept our distance and we were wiping down our studios and microphones anyway, just from normal germs, let alone this uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we were already in those practices and, uh, you know, and then finally the last couple of weeks we were working from home remotely. But if they had told me I had to come in, I was ready to do it because, you know, I, I working at a news station, it's like, Hey, news reporters go into burning buildings to cover mm -hmm, the story. Sometimes mm -hmm. that's part of the job. Yeah, and um, and we'll we'll talk about it again near the end. But I just say okay. right now, if you can support John's podcast on Patreon, like it, like I'm I'm currently supporting it as a comic book reader at three dollars because that's the price of a comic book, and these episodes are worth way more than that. But like, if you can support John, because like everything he does is really quality. Like every interview is fun and that's, that's very kind jesse i really i appreciate that man and that's i'm trying to i'm trying to put out a fun conversation uh show that even during this you know we, we still talk about what interests us and what what you know what creative people are thinking about uh as they make this stuff what what inspires them to make the books that they make yeah and like before i was kind of picky with which episode i listened to because i was like i don't know this name why would i listen but at this point i listen to every episode because even if i don't know the name i learned about a new i learned about someone new and honestly, by the time I finish, I start reading those books. Like, that means a lot. And I always, when people tweet that to me, I'm smiling right now. I always uh, will quote the tweet and I'll say the system works because um, I, luckily, anecdotally, many writers and artists will tell me that they'll meet new readers at conventions who say, I never would have known about your book had you not been on Word Balloon. So that's, that's the best compliment I can get. Thank you. And not only does John's podcast influence comic book reading, it influences TV watching because I have started Columbo and Bosch now because of John. Oh, good. Good. Two good shows. Man. I know my buddy Julianne. Julianne Emery is the uh, co-star for uh, season six. And it's a great show. I mean, Titus so well over the, uh, the lead that plays Bosch. He's, he's a great, compelling actor. Mm -hmm. And Peter Falk. I mean, my God, that guy, movies and TV, was always such an idiosyncratic actor and character. And uh, I mean, really, to me, Columbo is a classic Agatha Christie drawing room murder where instead of a very posh uh, Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple, this like stumbling, almost like clownish guy walks in and, and none of the murderers take him seriously. And they're like, this buffoon is investigating. I'm going to get away with this scot-free. And they have no idea the intellect that is there. And he just, he peels the onion layer by layer. Let me ask you something. I don't know. I might be nuts, you know, but it's just, it is that great uh, deceptive demeanor that he shows. And even the nineties episodes uh, that were made, you know, God, 15 years after the show went off the air. Um, a lot of, a lot of Col Columbo diehards are like, yeah, whatever. And I'm like, Hey, much like I said about Star Trek, P 
Peter Falk could show up and just be like, I'm eating chili for the next 90 minutes. You had me at hello. Sit down and eat the chili. I'll be watching. He has a movie on uh, Criterion that I've been meaning to get around to watching. It's like a, I think like a mob movie with like uh, him and like it's his character and and has a brother and his brother gets into trouble. So he has to help him with that. And I I can't remember what it's called. It's not, okay. It's not the in-laws? I don't think it's the in-laws. It's like two. Okay. It's the two char- main characters' names is in the title. I just can't remember what it's called. Oh, I wonder which one that is. Um, I uh, I love the I love Peter Falk though his entire his entire movie career. He was incredible. Yeah, and then like with a uh, Bosch, it's so engrossing because my dad's like, "Hey, I started watching this." I'm like, "Oh, I've been meaning to watch it." So we watched the first episode again because he already watched it, and we binged the whole first season in, like in four days. <laughs> just like every night, we just watch two. It's like whatever. I'll stay up late. Let's just watch it. I want to get going. It's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, we, we really are, for the last 20 years or so years, have been in the midst of a new golden age of television. And television is eating movies' lunch when it comes to complex storytelling because they have the broader canvas and they can tell one story over 10 or 13 issues, issues episodes. And uh, it's great. And I mean, it's only gotten better. And I think it pushes the networks to be more creative in a way that they never had. And that's why we got inventive shows like the good place on NBC. Mm-hmm. And that blew my mind that it was able to survive and thrive and last as long as it did. Cause uh, you know, again, I think they know the pressure and I think they were willing to uh, listen to the creators who said, Hey, we only want to do a certain amount of episodes each year, each season. And uh, it was always worth the wait. And again, uh, streaming and cable are able to do it. No problem. But that uh, network model of 20 or 23 or four shows a season, that's a hard habit to break because um, there's a lot of built-in costs that used to be offset by syndication. Mm -hmm. And now that just doesn't happen anymore. So they're having to find different ways. I mean, now there's the revenue stream of DVDs and, you know, buying, buying shows online and stuff. But uh, yeah, I think, I think the network model had to change because of the nimbleness of basic cable and the streamers. Yeah. And though we're drowning in uh, subscription models now, I am, I am very excited for HBO Max because I want those TMC movies or TCM. Me too, man. Oh, me too. Good Lord. You know, um, I have uh, Xfinity, Comcast, mm. and they, they moved Turner Classic Movies to a sports package. And it was like, you have to spend an extra 10 bucks to get Turner. And I, I felt like I was already paying through the nose for cable as it was. And so for like about seven or eight months, I'm like, I am not spending an extra 10 bucks for these old movies. And finally, uh, I think during the virus at the beginning of April, I bit the bullet and I'm like, you know, I miss these movies too much, man. I got, I got to watch them because not only the films, but all the documentaries they do, mm-hmm. um, it, Turner classic, uh, cinema or Turner classic movies is such a great channel and a great education. And it's, it's really, I think if you're a creative person, it's really good to watch the old stuff and be open to it. And that's cool that you are because um, I mean, there's been over a hundred years of great movie making mm-hmm. and, and you may as well learn from the people who did it best because that's like Tarantino's your classic example of a, a great modern day sponge who can look at old stuff and see uh, the tricks and the storytelling methods that they use and spin it into a modern product. And I, I really think that's, that's good because that's essentially what had been happening for years prior to cable. And I mean, you know, I grew up in that five channel world as I'm sure your parents did as well. Yeah. Where we didn't, you know, cable didn't really come into my life until 
uh, my, my late high school and college years. So I grew up watching these old black and white TV shows and films, and it was just another programming option. And again, tell me that, uh, you know, classic Hitchcock isn't better than 90% of the stuff that gets out there these days. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. So no, you know, don't ignore these masters just because it's black and white, but I also can appreciate young people that, um, they're just, uh, I think this generation of children really for the last 20 years or so, maybe even 25 years or 30 years, they have been so catered to in terms of having their own media sphere that literally from Teletubbies to now, like they are being programmed to 24 seven. When I was a little kid, it was Saturday mornings and a little bit of after school television, mm. but also that after school television was mixed with a bunch of old stuff. And, and now you really can, you know, grow up on Nickelodeon and never watch, you know, a, a rerun. Why would you when there are all these like shows that are aimed at tweeners and, and kids younger than 12 or 11 and, and Disney XD and all these channels and they're giving you, 24-7 of programming that is catered to you. So I, I, Howard Chaikin and I were talking about this uh, on a recent episode. And I, and I don't say that to defend what's happening. I'm just trying to explain it. And, yeah. and, I, and Howard knows it too. Howard's, Howard's a creature of television. He's certainly written enough television in his career. But yeah, it is, I, I do think that's the problem. And again, that, it doesn't surprise me. Because by the same token, just like you were saying about some modern shows, I mean, I don't know my Disney uh, live action TV shows. I don't know uh, any of that stuff. I, I knew a little bit of it when I, my nephews were young and the sweet life of Zach and Cody was a favorite of theirs or uh, Josh and Drake. I want to say, wasn't that another Disney uh, sh- live action show? That was Nickelodeon, but yeah. Oh, it was it's Nickelodeon. Still, there you go. Still, yeah. But even <laughs> then, like I, I'm closer to it than you, uh, you are at this point. And I have, I have a nephew too, who's about in TV watching age around 10 and like, I still don't know anything. I, I know the cartoons because I still love cartoons, but any of the live cool. action is just over <laughs> my head. Um, and, that, and that's what's really fascinating. And I hope, at least I see it with uh, people around my age, but I hope too with my nephew and the, and the kids growing up now that um, they come to uh, appreciate a lot of the older stuff because um, especially as, as you're creative, as you said, because like as, on the side, I write and like I, I learn from everything that I consume media-wise. Totally. Well, and again, it's, it's up to you to educate them. And luckily, I mean, you know, I, I, my father was great. My father was never going to be a creative person. He was a, he was a part-time musician. He could play the piano well, but he would really get excited again in that five channel world where it was like, Hey, they're showing 12 angry men at one o'clock in the morning, Friday night. Will you stay up and watch it with me? And my dad was one of my best friends. So I'm like, sure, dad, that'd be great. And you know, or uh, he was, he wasn't in world war II. But he was, uh, he was drafted in the final months of World War II and ended up serving during the post-war occupation. And he uh, served in Vienna, in Germany, when you know Germany was beaten and they had the four allied countries policing uh, Germany as it was you know, building itself back up again, but under very heavy allied rules. So the military police were really in charge of all the major cities. And he said, you want to, want to see what it was like for me in the army? I said, sure. And we watched this great Orson Welles, Joseph Cotton movie called The Third Man. And it's it's one of the classics of the post-war period. That's on my and, list to watch for sure. Oh, it's so good. I hear about it all the time. Great Criterion film. Uh, you know, I'm sure if it's not on the channel, you could definitely get the DVD. I'd be shocked if it wasn't on the channel. But it is. It's such an amazing film. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, that's how it was explained to me. It was, yeah, you want to see what I did during the war? I was an MP and I had to, and it was, it's all about uh, black, the black market in the post-war era and uh, crooks exploiting people. And like, you know, they think they're getting medicine when really it's, it's placebos, it's fake medicine and stuff and people dying. Uh, it's a, it's a great uh, suspense and mystery story. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm glad I had a, a father and uncles and aunts and everything beyond my parents that really were like, oh, you've got to see Spencer Tracy. He's incredible. And now I've watched Spencer Tracy movies. And yes, he is incredible. Jimmy Stewart was incredible. Jimmy Stewart, the Tom Hanks of the, from the 30s uh, through the, the 60s, um, that every man that everybody loves and everything. I mean, I would say that Tom Hanks is the Jimmy Stewart of his era. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah, you just, you do. You, you find out about these great uh, actors and actresses and stuff and you appreciate their work. And same with the writers and the directors. Yeah, I mean, I have the same appreciation with my father. Like, um, and and it's funny because like not every movie that he wants to watch me, I enjoy fully. Like, this might be sacrilege, but like, I I honestly did not very much care for Ben Hurd, but I think it's mostly because it was so long. Um, but we just popped on recently, Jason and the Argonauts, and I enjoyed watching that with him. We just sat there and watched it. That's awesome. Man. I popped it on for Ray myself, Her and he just sat down and watched it with me. It's a fun, it's a fun stop motion, and there there's a technology stop motion animation that probably looks quaint to a, a modern kid. But uh, Ray Harryhausen, man, that was magic back, uh, you know, when he started doing that stuff in the 50s. And uh, one of my first San Diego Comic-Cons, 2006, I got to meet Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen. They were walking around together just because they're, they grew up as nerds. They were there at San Diego since it started in the 70s. And, you know, they're, they were geniuses. And, I mean, such science fiction icons but uh it was great to walk up and thank them for their work and they were incredibly kind and gracious and i'm sure they they shook, shook a million hands over the years of uh, fans like us that just appreciate what they did yeah my, my goal once this is all over and things kind of calm down is to try to make an effort to go to more cons because I, I haven't been able to go to much cons even before this but uh, i just realized like i don't have enough time to wait to see my favorite creators especially the older ones like i just need to make my way there somehow I hear you, man. No, it's uh, San Diego's terrific. And um, San Diego, New York in particular, uh, the old timers show up and uh, I'm glad. And, and really, yeah, it's a, it's a good chance to thank them for the, the beautiful stuff they've done, especially the comic book people. I mean, Jim Apparel was this wonderful artist from the 60s through the 90s and was one of the top Batman artists. Mm -hmm. Never went to a San Diego convention until very late in his career in the 90s. And he got a standing ovation and he started to cry. And he just, he's like, I didn't know. Because a lot of these guys, especially from the Golden Age, the Silver Age, and the Bronze Age, you know, ending in the mid-80s and stuff, some of them just never got into the fan thing. And they mm -hmm. literally were sitting at their drafting uh, table or behind their typewriter and stuff and just hammering the stuff out. I mean, making great art that we still appreciate decades later, but they were earning a paycheck. They didn't know. They, mm -hmm. they, they really didn't know uh, the impact that they had on so many of us. Yeah. And I guess that's a good transition to talk about like what uh what comic book character story or whatever like really impacted you growing up. Sure. Well, you know, from a visual standpoint, um, I always loved the Flash, and not only uh, and when I was growing up, Barry Allen was the Flash, mm -hmm. uh, and I loved Kid Flash because he had a great costume too. But I really loved uh, Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash's costume with the Mercury helmet and the wing shoes. I don't know, something about all those Golden Age characters, the Justice Society, 
those designs of those costumes, which is so beautiful. And yeah. really from Dr. Midnight to Hour Man, I was a huge Hour Man fan. Didn't care about his powers. Just really was all visual, especially early on. Or it like was, even like the Sandman. From, from absolutely, with the gas mask and the, oh, yeah. and the green suit and the gun. Oh, God, yeah. And man, again, uh, the look of these characters was enough to appreciate. And also when I was growing up in the 70s, they were reprinting a lot of the Golden Age and Silver Age stuff in uh, dollar books, 50 cent books. And you'd get a couple old stories along with the new story and everything. So it was just comics. It didn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, but then as I got older, and especially uh, by college age, a lot of writers, uh, you know, the writing started to get more sophisticated in the mid 80s. And um, God, in the 90s, when they were doing uh, Sandman Mystery Theater, which I don't know if you've ever read those, but oh, they're so good. It's um, the writers, Matt Wagner and Steve Siegel, mm -hmm. took the original Sandman stories uh, that were only like 10 pages long and turned them into five issue arcs, story arcs. And it was amazing because, and also kept them still in the late 30s. So it was the beginnings of the DC universe when there were only a handful of mystery men, as they called them back then, as yeah. opposed to superheroes. And um, they were really sophisticated stories. Guy Davis, a brilliant artist, would draw them. And um, it really was great. It was this street-level hero that didn't have powers. He had his gas gun and he had his gas mask, but really was just kind of a guy that had to rely on his fist. Wasn't Batman, wasn't a physical specimen, but, you know, really was able to... He had, you know, he kind of worked, uh, operated along the lines of the shadow and a bit like Batman in terms of working from the darkness of an alley or, or things like that, but and the element of surprise. But they were just really smart stories. Um, so that's been the fun is what, what I appreciated from a visual standpoint as a kid, the writing just kept getting better and better. And that's what excited me. So, I mean, honestly, everything from, uh, God, I was in college. I hadn't read comics in a while because... There were periods, uh, and I don't know if this happened in your life, but, you know, I, I loved comic books. And then when I was starting to get, get to high school age, I wanted to date girls. So it was, all right, do you have money for a date or do you have money for comic books? Well, I put the money into trying to date girls. Mm -hmm. So I stopped reading for a while. And then in the mid-80s, uh, there was a Rolling Stone magazine article, the great rock and roll magazine, talking about Frank Miller's run on The Dark Knight Returns. And how, isn't this interesting? Frank Miller is doing this kind of outlaw Batman that's turning 60 and had been retired for 10 years and all of a sudden it's coming back. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. So I went to the local comic shop. I went to Illinois State University, went to a local comic shop, got the first issue of Dark Knight Returns. And um, at the time, they also are close enough to that time, um, they started having ads for Watchmen. Mm -hmm. And and if, you know, it, it depends on who you talk to because I know younger people will read Watchmen and go, what's the big deal? The, the big deal, because there've been so many stories that have emulated Watchmen's beats. I mean, even Mark Miller's great series, uh, uh, Jupiter's uh, Legacy and Jupiter's Circle borrows a lot, I think, from Watchmen and the generations of heroes and, and all that idea. But uh, Watchmen did it first and it was yeah. so exciting to see. And Dave Gibbons was already a top artist and Alan Moore was already, already a top writer. But they just took the idea of the superhero story in such a radical direction. And it was really groundbreaking, exciting stuff. And, um, you know, we were all blown away. So, you know, it's, again, it started with the visuals for me, but then uh, thankfully the writing got more sophisticated. And that's what, you know, brought me back to comics and maybe an, an adult reader.
Yeah, the funny thing is, I feel like a lot of people um, in that era of comic books, it was the Dark Knight uh, Returns and Batman, the 1989 movie, that brought so many people back. Because I remember hearing Kevin Smith say the same thing. Like, those are the two things that brought him back. Oh, yeah. Or, or the Dark Knight Returns and then that movie. Because, like, it reinvigorated, like, what comics could be for an adult. Yeah. And even no, when I talked about it, like, when it first came out and stuff. Oh, so. that, when, they would, when they would run that Batman trailer the summer before it, 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 or the winter before it came out. I don't even, it might've been the year before. I don't know. But comic shops would have uh, VHS copies of the trailer mm-hmm. and they just run them over and over and over again. And we'd all just stand transfixed and watched it because what Tim Burton was able to do visually was really, really exciting. And, you know, God, I mean, you know, Jack Nicholson was a perfect guy for Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was really, it was an event all of a sudden, you know, people took it seriously. I mean, the original uh, Richard Donner Superman movie is a great movie, but mm-hmm. it still had a little bit of that uh, Batman 66 campiness to it. And by the way, I, I do love Batman 66. Uh, the original yeah, I, I mean, I, I have uh, the Blu-ray box set of the Oh, that's great, man. Of the whole series. That's great. Well, you know, I always say there's like three stages of watching Batman, the, the 66 show. And the first is when you're five years old, that's like the greatest action show ever. Yeah. The fights are incredible. And you really, you don't know it's a comedy and you're buying into it all. Then you hit about 10 or 11 and you know it's a joke and it's like, oh, this is corny. Then you hit high school age and you see it again and all of a sudden it registers with you. Oh no, it's corny on purpose. It's mm-hmm. a parody. It's yeah. there. It really is a very smart, snide show that is making fun of the, the comic book tropes. And then you realize that Adam West is this incredible comedy genius. And now growing up with Family Guy and all the other great things that Adam West did before he passed away, yeah. we all recognize what a tremendous actor he was. But also, really, at the end of the day, this guy playing a straight man, but really playing it in such an audacious way that he himself is incredibly funny. And just that, just deadpan, Robin, we have to be careful. You know, and it's just, yeah. you buy it. And it's like, oh my, and like I said, first he's like, oh man, this guy's really sincere about fighting crime when you're five. And then you had high school, it's just like, this guy's one of the funniest men ever, ever to walk the earth. I mean, my God, he's, he's a genius. He's a comedy genius. So uh, I, I love that show. But, but like I said, Superman still had a little bit of that. And it really did take first the Burton movie, which was audacious in its design. Mm-hmm. But at least it, it had a ground, in, in most ways, a reasonably grounded story. And, uh, and then, God, the Nolan movies, thank God, you know, 20 years later, or, you know, or 15 years later, are just incredible examples of great storytelling and really, like, putting Batman in a modern, uh, I mean, air, air quotes, plausible situation. I don't know. I, I, I mean, as much as there have been real uh, superheroes that have come in the last 20 years and are out patrolling and stuff like that. It's still a little goofy, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. A little more believable with Nolan. Well, and it's one of those amazing things, I think, when it comes to comics and comic book-related things, but most media in general, you get two contexts. You get the context of when you first enjoyed it, but then you get the context of when it actually came out. Because I think about when you said with Watchmen, how a lot of people are like, my age are like, well, what's the big deal about Watchmen is they miss the context of when it came out in a lot of ways. And that really influences that book. But also the messaging now in the modern day of what Watchmen is, I think is way off than what it originally was. Because a lot of people, I feel like, treat Rorschach as um, like the hero of that book where he really was 
just as bad as everybody else. And absolutely. And the, everybody in that book was a villain. Or at least incredibly flawed. Yeah. And, and, and just damaged. Like the you most. Know, even, even like Night Owl, Dan Dryberg with the best intentions was a damaged guy. Yeah, he was the um, most heroic of them all. And even then he let the evil win that round. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's the world is complicated. I mean, that's that's the real message of Watchmen, and I and I really enjoyed the HBO series, and I give uh, uh, Lindo, Damon Lindelof so much credit for finding a way of of playing in that universe, telling his own story, but really capturing the ideas of Watchmen, and I think it was very smart to, you know, keep it within you know. 20 years of the original story and yeah. really, you know, keep as opposed to just trying to modernize everything. Because as you say, yeah, it really, it is an 80s story. It very much is an 80s story. And also a lot of what ifs like, well, if a superhero were there and won the Vietnam War for us, you know, who's to say that Richard Nixon wouldn't have had four terms. Maybe they would have changed that law. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, with, again, based on uh, the precedent of, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, being such an important uh, president during the depression and world war two that he was able to be elected four times and stuff. So it, it wasn't as implausible uh, then as it might be now. Yeah. And, and I really enjoyed the, the Lindelof show a lot. And my only gripe with it overall was I didn't feel like it took a, a hard stance on anything other than like one or two subjects that it was portraying but i understand at the same time nowadays when you're making tv yeah you have to play the politics of uh what might be allowed and back in comic books like then at least when you have someone like alan moore at the height of alan moore's career at that point you just let him do whatever except have the characters he asked for yeah and and instead of uh, getting the characters that he asked for they end up creating this whole different group i mean I think it would have still been a very effective story uh, yeah. had DC, you know, let him take Blue Beetle and the question and all those characters and turn them that way. But then again, um, we wouldn't have these very unique choices, uh, different uh, characters and still be able to get great question stories and Blue Beetle stories and Nightshade and all the other quality heroes when yeah. they are put in the hands of the right creators. I mean, I think right now, Jeff Lemire and, Dennis Cowan are telling a great question story. And the question is different from Rorschach. Rorschach is a psychotic. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, so that's, that's good because I do think there's, you know, a, a palpable difference between them. And again, it's uh, when you are a lot of times in creativity, when you're told no, it makes your mind react. And sometimes you come up with a better solution. Had someone just said, do whatever you want with whomever you want. Yeah. And and I think, um, I'm I'm grateful for that decision because some of my my favorite characters are uh, Blue Beetle and the Question, and I don't think they would ever have become my favorite characters if they were in Watchmen. Sure, uh, yeah. Well, certainly, built Blue Beetle much more, and it's interesting because he was a Ditko creation, yeah. a much more optimistic character than uh, than even Night Owl was. I mean, Night Owl's trying to be the Blue Beetle, essentially, but you know, again, his own his own foibles keep him from that uh, ability to do it. And, and again, that's, that was the great thing about Watchmen was everybody's flawed. And um, I would say to the, what you said about the Lindelof and everything, um, you know, every, every villain thinks they are the hero of their story uh -huh. and that their motives are absolutely the right thing to do. And that's why like the portrayal of Lex Luthor in Smallville, I thought was excellent and tragic in the best ways 
because Lex is just trying to be the best guy he knows how to be. And yeah, he, he, you know, breaks the rules and cuts corners and stuff like that. But for, you know, a good four or five years, his intent is, no, I could be a good man. I could be better than my family and my family's reputation if people would just let me. And a lot of it was, I mean, things that pushed him to be darker were uh, uh, an entire community going, oh, you Luthers. I mean, Jonathan Kent all the time. I can't trust those Luthers. Yeah. And it just, and yeah, and I mean, and, and it hurt him. I mean, and it's it's good. I mean, and, and really uh, got a great uh, book that, um, um, oh God, now I'm blanking. Uh, Elliot Magan, uh, one of the great uh, Bronze Age Superman writers. Um, he wrote a book called... Um, Last Son of Krypton, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be a tie-in to the movies, but then uh, they were told it couldn't be, so we had to write an original paperback story. And this is a paperback novel meant for, not meant for a comic book audience, it was meant for an older audience, mm-hmm. but it was a Bronze Age uh, sensibility Superman story, where he was Superboy, grew up in Smallville, uh, all, the, all the classic tropes, and he told this very adult portrayal of Luther, and at one point, Superman, a powerless Superman and Luther are trapped somewhere and, uh, and Luther saves Superman because it's the only way they're going to get out. And they just know each other so well that, uh, you know, it's, it's a great por- portion of the book that you forget that they were once friends or my favorite scene at the end of, if you've ever read Kingdom Come. Oh yeah. Well, that, that scene in Planet Krypton, uh, the restaurant and it's Clark and uh, Bruce and, and uh, Diana all having uh, dinner or whatever and, uh, you know, Clark asks Bruce, hey, how's Luther? And he goes, oh, I caught him down uh, in the back cave trying to hack the back computer. And he goes, by the way, he says hello. And Clark has this great look at us. He's like, really? And like, really? Like, oh, maybe I'll be friends again. And Bruce is like, no. <laughs> and I just love that because that's, that is those two characters right there, Bruce and Clark. Clark is like, oh, maybe I could be friends with him again. And Bruce is like, you idiot. He hates you. Yeah. It's not going to happen. And again, this is the subtext that these modern writers and artists are able to convey in today's stories, that is the great thing. I, I quote Bendis all the time where we've seen a million fistfights between these characters, but what we haven't heard is every conversation. And knowing what we know now about these characters, another great example is, uh, and it was, I believe, in uh, when Brian was writing it, uh, it was uh, Dr. Doom and uh, and The Thing. Because yeah. we know the Dr. Doom Reed Richards um relationship and that you know doom was always outdone by reed but what i love is ben Grimm and victor von doom because they went to college too Mm -hmm. and doom looks at ben like you dumb jock you're still that big man on campus idiot that i could outwit circles around and by the same token ben Grimm's is like you nerd you're still that little twerp that thinks you're so great with your brain and you have no idea how the world works. And it's and that's, to me, the much more interesting, you can hear the smile in my voice, but it really, I mean, that's what excites me. It's like, yeah, man, that's what I want to see. I want to see the thing in Victor Von Doom because there's still those two college guys that hate each other and never understood where the other guy was coming from. And that, to me, is fantastic and a great dynamic to explore. Yeah, I think one uh, one of the the best things the late uh, in the later years of the New 52 was when it was when Luther... Uh, was like no I'm gonna be a hero because if I can't beat Superman as a villain well I'm just gonna be better than him as a hero and that whole arc of when he was helping them during like uh, Forever Evil I think was the event and then how he got the Superman logo on his suit and 
with yep. the, and then crossing the rebirth when eventually Luther went back to being bad, it became a point where he was like, I can't even beat him at, at his own game. Like what, where am I at now? Like, what am I going to well, do? Yeah. Jeff Johns to me, my favorite spin because it went like mad scientist originally mm-hmm. then around, you know, the John Byrne era, they turned him into the industrialist. Yeah. That's who why I've been reading who, recently. Who, John yeah, Byrne stuff. It's great. It's fantastic. But I loved that Jeff Johns made, Lex Luthor, a more selfish Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. where I am going to be the savior of humanity and I will get all the credit for it. And he's doing it as much for the glory as he is to, I, I do think Luther was like coming up with these things to better the world, but he wanted the credit. I mean, that's mm-hmm. why it's Luther Corp and, and, and Luther's name is all over the place on everything he ever does. And all of a sudden this alien shows up with nothing but, but goodness in his heart and all the people love him. And that drives him crazy. More, and it really is an, an egotistical thing with him. And uh, that, that to me. And also, uh, Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo did this great uh, Lex Luthor miniseries called uh, Man of Steel. And it was Lex Luthor, Man of Steel. And there's this great lunch that Lex has with Bruce Wayne, having no concept that he's talking to Batman. But he basically makes the xenophobic argument of this guy is an alien. How can we trust him? When does he stop pretending and his real motives come to light? We can't let that happen. And there's a little bit of that in the Zack Snyder, Batman V Superman movie, not enough. Yeah. And I really think they missed a great opportunity where Jesse Eisenberg is playing Luther like he is a Batman 66 villain instead of being a sober Steve Jobs, social, social network kind of, uh, in the way that he was in that movie and stuff, just like very much like, hey, we can't trust this guy. We have no idea what his real motives are. And, and I think it would have been much more effective and an interesting intellectual problem rather than, wah-ha-ha, ha, I'm going to get Superman. You know? Yeah, and even with the end of, uh, I think of the end of All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison, like you have him yeah, get yeah. the Superman serum at the end and, then, and he's like, this is, what, this is what you see. This is everything that you perceive the world to be then he loses it he's like why did why not like give me more so i could do what you can't i can save people and he's like you had all this time luther to work with me and you chose to fight me the whole time yeah and but then but even with regret and with that absolutely but then also that after superman dies doesn't doesn't luther kind of become yeah a like, superman and a serum i mean like that's a, a better yeah person. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, and he doesn't realize it, but he becomes the thing that he used to hate. But he's he becomes Superman. I mean that's that's terrific. No, I it's a great story, man. I'll tell you, I've, I've only had uh, two on the record conversations with Grant Morrison. One was only five minutes on video, and yeah. the other was uh, this past month when uh, I only had forty five minutes, and he was sharing the time with Liam Sharp. And I love Liam too, and I didn't want to shortchange Liam. And we mostly talked about Green Lantern. I'm I'm hoping to get Grant back at some point. Um, it's tough because he doesn't do a ton of interviews. Uh, I'm glad he consented to do the one that we did. I think he had fun and he, it was, it was nice. And he seemed to, I, I hadn't seen him in like over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we had a nice friendly conversation. I, I, I really hope that I get a chance sooner than later to talk to him again. Yeah. Man talks a hundred miles an hour every time I hear an interview. But <laughs> it, every, every word is amazing. You know, the, the Scottish in particular have such deep accents. And uh, Mark, Mark Miller, I talked to him in December, 
and he's got he speaks quickly as well because again they're they're I understand they are speaking English. Mm-hmm. It's just that those accents are so deep. And uh, every now and then I'd be like, okay, Mark, I think you just said X Y Z, and he'd laugh and he's like, John, I'm sorry, I gotta remember to slow down when I'm speaking to Americans. And it's true. Or and he was telling me he said it on the on the show that there was a DC editor that never understood his accent. And no matter what he told him, he'd be like, ha, ha, that's hilarious. And he was telling him, oh, you know, my uncle just died last week. And he's like, ha, ha, that's hilarious. And it's not realizing what Mark had just told him. So, uh, no, they, they do understand. Uh, most of the Scots, I'll, I'll, I'll use the, those two as a, uh, an example. But it seems like if you explain to them, it's like, all right, just slow down just a hair, man, because I'm getting it. And, I, and that's always been like the great complaint of when I've had a mark on it's like, I, I can't understand what he's saying. <laughs> I'm like, well, you just have to, you have to listen carefully and, and you'll get it. He'll, yeah. He'll come to you, so. <laughs> uh, uh, after Watchmen and um, the Dark Knight, what was the next comic book you think that uh, hit close to home with you? Well, I really appreciated Kingdom Come, Alex Ross and, and also Marvel's. Marvel's was uh, uh, Alex Ross and Kurt Busiek and Kingdom yeah. Mark Wade and, uh, and Alex. Um, Alex's art is so realistic and mm-hmm. um, and so beautiful that again, that's what got me in the front door, but it was the stories that kept me there. Um, I've always been a Nick Fury fan, agent of shield. Um, I, I love the fact that uh, Samuel L played him in the movies, but I go back to uh, you know, the, the original design of Nick Fury as well. And um, so I've always appreciated, I'm a bit, I mean, I grew up with the whole James Bond craze. Yeah. So, uh, you know, secret, it's the secret agent genre has always hit me well. And uh, so I've always been a fan of that. Crime comics are terrific. And I really got uh, Slam Bradley, who was in the original Action Comics, number one, and was another creation of uh, Siegel and Schuster, um, a plainclothes detective guy. Um, When Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook were doing Catwoman in the early 2000s, Slam became a big character in that book. And I always appreciated him as kind of like a Humphrey, a a bigger, beefier, kind of a cross between Robert Mitchum physically and maybe a, a Bogart uh, sensibility as far as his attitude. But I always thought he was a great character. I love Wildcat because I'm a massive boxing fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the original Ted Grant uh, and him being a former heavyweight champion that became super, a superhero. I thought that was a lot of fun. And um, the, the, the JSA book that James Robinson, David Goyer, and eventually Jeff Johns all wrote, and then Jeff really took till the end of the run, that to me was a, a superior uh, comic book because it, it understood the legacy portion of the DC universe. The golden age heroes were teachers and really helping the next young generation of, of heroes learn the craft. And they were as important to the story as the new heroes were. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that because again, it was that combination of my favorite designs of costumes, but being more uh, sophisticated. God, I loved when, um, Shazam, Captain Marvel. I still call him Captain Marvel. I do too, half the time. <laughs> when when Billy Batson was dating Stargirl. Mm-hmm. And and she knew that he was Captain Marvel. And there were a couple moments where they might be hugging or something as Captain Marvel and Stargirl. And Jay Garrick getting in Shazam's face and going, hey, that's a teenage girl. You're an adult man. What the hell do you think you're doing? Yeah. And, he, and he couldn't reveal his identity and he had to break up with her. Billy had to break up with her and stuff. I'm like, wow, man, that sucks. That's too bad because Billy is a kid. You know, Captain Marvel really is a kid hiding in a man's body. And I, that's one of the things that make him fun. But that's the thing. They would take 
any anyone who would take these original character designs and find more mature stories to tell about them that they wouldn't have told 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Yeah, I, I think honestly the, the holy trinity of those kind of writers is Jeff Johns, Mark Wade, and Kurt Busiek. Like all three of them, every character they touch has this sense of uh, honoring the legacy of uh, whoever it, it belongs to, but also at the same time fleshing out that world to a, a, a level that I, I could never imagine myself. Yeah, I mean, they, no, you're right. They they understood what made the characters great, and they uh, also share from the benefit of knowing that they're also playing with these characters to an older audience that grew up with them as well. Um, I got to tell you, I uh, and I've been talking about it ever since uh, Jeff let me see the first five episodes of uh, Star Girl, the new CW show that's going to mm-hmm. start in a in a week. Uh, it's amazing, and it is so worth everyone's time. And uh, it's, it's, I really think, especially right now during the shut-in, everyone's going to really appreciate it because it's, it's an upbeat show. It's a good family show. It's funny. It has, it has its dark corners to it, but it really it works. And I think it works on a lot of levels. And I, I really appreciate uh, how, how good it is. I, I always, and I'm, I'm super excited for the Star Girl show myself because like every character that, because uh, I like one of my biggest dreams ever is to eventually write a comic book for one of the big two, but it's DC mostly, and all those characters that I really want to write are the old JSA uh, Charlton type characters that don't get the limelight anymore because I feel right. like they uh, they still have a lot of stories to tell, but no one no one knows what to do with them just yet. Agreed, and and I hope we get to a point where like now that the JSA are kind of back in the universe and we know Ted Kord is back as Blue Beetle, like I, I want them to get their own uh, um, comics again. I but, at the, but at the same time, I know that there's been iterations on these people. Like we have uh, Jaime Reyes as Blue Beetle. We have uh, other people as uh, the Flash. We have other people as um, just the other legacy characters. And I want them to still be incorporated into whatever comes out because I think as much as legacy matters, um relatability to newer audiences still matter and yeah i'm i'm not one of those people that yells and complains whenever uh, a character uh, changes race or um genders or anything like that because to me when it comes to like uh, i think stanley maybe said this it's like spider-man is just like it's the mask and then there's peter parker but there's also miles like they're both spider-man but they're different people and i think as long as you keep that um that kind of idea of it, I think that uh, new characters can take the mantle at any time. And I think it would be fun. I agree. And I would say that if your ambition is to write for the big two, um, follow in the footsteps of people like Kirkman and others that created their own characters that um, like, like, you know, um, Invincible Mm -hmm. uh, clearly is Kirkman's initial take on Spider-Man. Yeah. And and he created his own character, and and doing that got him Marvel jobs and everything. And then, of course, you know, Walking, Walking Dead. Dead. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that's the thing. It's interesting because I think for and especially for young people, that is the initial ambition. Got to be right to write. It'd be great to write Superman. It'd be great to write Spider Man, The Avengers, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, I I was even um, every now and then someone will write me and say, Hey, how do, how do I break into the big two? And it's like make your own stuff. Make your own stuff and make it matter because that's how you will get noticed. 
But also you might find that once you're there and writing for the big two, it may not be what you really want. Mm -hmm. Rick Remender was just on the show talking about that. Yeah, I love that, that episode. Was, you know, and, and Ricky's a smart guy, man. I, I love talking to him because, you know, yeah, that was the ambition. And then he got there and it was, well, you can't use this villain because of X and you can't use this hero because this writer is writing them and, and whatever. And it's hard that, you know, mm -hmm. because, and, but again, when you have restrictions, that's when creativity will really serve you and likely create a better story than you maybe initially had in the case of the Watchmen as an example. But that said, um, you, you know, yeah, I really, I really think you need to, because the, I think you need to create your own characters. And the great thing is the problems they face are reasonably universal. So you could do an aging Batman and have a different street level hero kind of going through whatever you wanted Batman to go through. God, uh, in fact, um, Joe Casey, one of the best uh, writers who really made his splash in the 90s at the big two and in the early 2000s, then created Ben 10. Mm -hmm. Ben 10 was supposed to be a Dial H for Hero DC idea that they rejected. And he's like, well, fuck you. I'm going to just, I still, <laughs> you know, him and the other guys of uh, his studio, the Men of Action, they knew they had something and they pitched it independent of Dial H to Cartoon Network. And, or, you know, 20, it, it's like 15 years later, Ben 10 or 10 years later. I forget how long it's been running. But my God, they're on like the fourth or fifth different cartoon series and they're still making toys and, and, I, and uh, so I grew up watching it what's that like it was a show that i grew up watching and it just it further installed superheroes to me absolutely and now um one of the things that joe is writing is this great book called sex and it does sex is a component of the story as it says in the title but essentially he has this lead character who is an industrialist and kind of a cross between Tony Stark and Bruce Wayne, who um, you could easily recognize where, where the trope is coming from, but he's telling this very interesting original story that no way in hell would DC or Marvel let him do with their characters because they're still selling bedsheets. I mean, Rucka always told me, Greg Rucka, um, he always wanted to do a, like as a side story or a way to flesh out the Bruce Wayne character, have a bunch of former Bruce Wayne girlfriends all talking about, oh God, one night with Bruce, it was the best sex I ever had. They're all lying because mm -hmm. the reality was he would always make an excuse of not being able to go to bed with them because he had to go out and fight crime. But they all think because of the image that Bruce Wayne portrays that they all, he, they can't be the, you know, they must be the only one that he never had sex with. Mm -hmm. So they're certainly not going to give that up to their, you know, a group of girlfriends and stuff who all had had their relationships with Bruce Wayne. So they're all lying. And isn't that hilarious I irony? And DC's like, yeah, no, Batman can't do that. Sorry. And it's like, come on, we're, we're writing these for an adult. Yeah, we're, we're still selling birthday cakes. We're still selling, you know, puzzles and games and, and things, you know, toys to kids. No, we, can, we really can't explore Batman's sex life. I'm sorry, which has been interesting. And I know like the comics still have uh, issues with letting certain adult themes go through, but I'm, I'm so grateful now that they're letting the creators for the most part, it seems like really go make the characters feel more adult. Like I think about Tom King's Batman run and how it really deals with some really heavy topics overall. You're right. And, and then, but now with Rucka too, with um, Lois Lane, like there's some hard marital issues that come up in that book. 
Yeah. That I, you wouldn't have seen 10 years ago, probably. Well, that's, and you're right about that. And also uh, the animation has opened up as well. And, you know, it's uh, the, a lot of people had a problem with the first uh, half hour of uh, the Killing Joke animated movie and what Azzarello added to the story and had uh, Barbara Gordon and, and Batman hook up and everything in a, in a heated moment of passion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people who grew up on the animated series were really like, hey, what are you doing? Especially given that Kevin Conroy and uh, Tara Strong were uh, the, the voice actors, the same actors yeah. that did it, you know, 20 years ago. I'm shrugging and, uh, you know, again, I'm being a little bit older than that uh, young and teen audience that grew up on the animated series. I had no problem with it, Um, it, you know, but I can appreciate, I mean, that's the thing. Those are the two sides of the argument. We want the stories to be more adult, but by the same token, you know, we still want to believe in Santa Claus. So it's, it's kind of tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally had my own problems with the killing joke adaptation for other reasons, but in the same vein, uh, Kyle, uh, Kyle Higgins is, um, uh, continuation of the animated universe and Batman Beyond Unlimited. He had that whole sub, uh, that sub story with Barbara and Bruce where like when Dick was gone, they fell into each other's arms in a weird way and they had to deal with heavy stuff in that. Yep. And I thought that was extremely well executed, but like, that's, that's the universe I grew up watching as a kid. Right. And again, those, those fans that are like, no, she belongs with Dick Grayson. What are you doing? That doesn't, you know, God, Judd Winnick went even further and had um, Jason Todd revived by uh, Raza Ghoul's daughter mm-hmm. and Talia. And, um, you know, after, after, you know, he was left for dead, but then he stumbled into a Lazarus pit and found himself again. And at the end of the story, Talia has sex with Jason Todd. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a big like, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, again, I shrug. It's like, okay, that's a story choice. You don't have to love it. I had, I had a bigger problem with uh, J. Michael Straczynski uh, saying that uh, Gwen Stacy had an affair with Norman Osborn. Yeah. And I'm like, I just don't see that. I mean, that's like, you know, or even a non-sexual thing when Roberto Aguirre Scarza wanted to write a Marvel Knights Fantastic Four story of them going broke. And it's like, I don't think the smartest man in the world goes broke. Yeah. I think, I think Reed Richards has inventions and ideas that he could sell to any government or any military in a heartbeat that, yeah, they could, they could make a financial mistake and for a moment be broke. But I really do believe that, all right, give me a week. Uh, hey, uh, military, here's something I invented for the FF. You want it for our fighting forces? We sure do. Here's $20 billion. Okay, yeah. everything's fine. <laughs> and, or if you even wanted them just out of the Baxter building, you could just make it that Reed was oblivious to some weird legal thing that kicked them out. Like, that, sure. like there's, there's other ways around some of that. And but um, that's, you, I don't know if you ever read that story. It was Marvel mm-hmm. Knights 4. And they literally are back on Yancey Street, like living in like an apartment. And it's like, I'm I'm sorry, I don't I don't buy it. I yeah. don't buy it. It's it again, you've you've made Reed Richards far too smart to find himself in that situation. And the thing I find amazing is the the stuff like that has been going on for ages within our comic books and TV shows. Cause I think about the animated series back in the day. And there's a lot of stuff they allude to that just went over my head as a kid but it's still there um there's that one episode of just league unlimited with uh batman beyond and he finds out that bruce is in kind of his father yeah <laughs> and there's a line i think by um he asks like how'd you get bruce's dna and i think amanda Waller just goes he had it lying everywhere 
<laughs> and it's like, oh, okay. As a kid, no idea. As well, an that's adult, funny. It makes a hundred percent sense now. <laughs> or even I didn't take it to mean that. I took it to mean, well, yeah, Batman's all over the place. He's cry, you know, you know. He's yeah, and I think I think it was things, as for kids yeah. as for kids it was meant that way. But the way the lines delivered is a little like, oh, okay, that's a bit odd. <laughs> That is hilarious. That's fantastic. Well, I, I saw that as an adult man, and it, my mind didn't go there, but I can appreciate that. It's very oh, funny. But even the same, Potter, she oh. was she was so perfect as Amanda Waller. Oh yeah, she really was. But I think the same thing in that same series with uh, Wonder Woman and Bruce too. Like the, the romance, and yes, you had um, ah, my mind's now spacing too. You had Phil Lamar on just recently too, talking about uh, uh, John Stewart and Hot Girl. Yeah, and Hot Girl. Yeah. And the yeah. stuff that they did with the question where he got tortured at the end of those uh yes that series, it's just or or even, you know, uh, my good friend Susan Eisenberg, uh animated Wonder Woman. Um, and she always talks about playing those great scenes with Kevin Conroy and stuff and the romance. And uh no, I mean again, that's the great thing is you had these brilliant writers like Dwayne McDuffie and Paul Dini, uh, and Alan Burnett, who all, you know, really grew up on the stuff, loved the stuff so much, and just had this great opportunity with Bruce Tim and the evolution of the DC animated product, starting with the animated series of Batman and then, you know, really justice league and then Batman beyond. Uh, I mean, good Lord. It was, it was fantastic. And one of my best friends who stopped reading comics well before high school, uh, I told him about the justice league cartoon and we were watching it and his wife walked in and she's like, what are you doing? And he's like <laughs> apologetic. He's like, you don't understand. I know this is a cartoon, but they really are playing it like adults. He goes, it really does feel like a live action movie right now. And it's great. And she's like, all right. <laughs> and walked away, but he got it. He understood. And that was the great thing was that show kept on the air. You know, they were pushing it for a Y7 audience. Mm -hmm. And I know some of the other shows that didn't make it beyond, like the Green Lantern show, didn't yeah. make it beyond a season. And I heard a lot of podcasters complaining and saying, why are they canceling it? And it's like, because the point of that show was to sell a toy line and, and the it. toy line didn't sell. So they got to move on to the next idea. But but adults are watching, so the ratings are good. No, because television really is, when we say it's a Y7 show, we want seven-year-olds watching it. And if they're yeah. not, then we're failing. Even if we're getting a different adult audience, that was not why this show was created. And we are wasting money on this Y7 network trying to appeal to a Y7 audience with a show that adults are enjoying. And thankfully, because of what's happened, uh, the movies have gotten a little more intense and more hard, hard R's. And the same with the TV shows. God, mm -hmm. I've been talking to Pat Schumacher, the co-showrunner and co-creator of the Harley Quinn animated show. And I don't know if you have DC Universe or even started watching it last week on Sci-Fi Channel. I, I have DC Universe, but I haven't gotten around to watching the Harley show yet. It's great. It's great. And it's, it's a dirty show. And I mean mm -hmm. that in the sense of it absolutely needs to be rated R with a lot of the jokes that they have. And I am stunned. And, and we've been, uh, because it started on sci-fi, uh, Patrick and I have been doing uh, episode recaps going back to the first season. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just recorded a bunch today. And it's like, I won't, I won't spoil, but there are certain jokes that it's like, that's definitely an R-rated joke. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, and the brass, the, the, the people upstairs are okay with that. And he's like, no, they get it. This is a Rick and Morty uh, era of animation. They knew that they were buying an adult cartoon. And so they're not winning every argument, but they're winning nine out of 10 arguments Yeah. of we want to do this joke. Fine. No problem. And then every now and then something would happen and be like, eh, maybe, maybe this one. 
and and the producers are reasonable because they're getting 80 to 90 percent of what they want in there and they know that you know like someone's foot in the bill and again it's like we'd rather batman not say that or do that okay yeah. fine we get it that's yeah. that's okay we'll change it and even with like the Teen Titans Go show for for the kid audiences, I know a lot of people were hating on it when it first came out. But one, it's actually really funny at times. But just like Animaniacs back in the day, there are jokes that they get away with that just go over kids' heads all the time. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think it's in the movie, not the show itself. But there's a point where Robin, they're in back in, they're like in back in time or some reason, and Robin just sees Bruce there, and he pushes his parents in the alley. You hear two gunshots, and he comes back out and thumbs up the rest of the audience, and then runs away. And you're like, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Uh, Scotty Young uh, was the guy who told me because I was like, all right, that show's not for me. That's for kids. He's like, dude, it's Rocky and Bullwinkle subversive. And I knew what he meant because, again, like the original Rocky and Bullwinkle was had jokes that absolutely were playing over the kids' heads, mm -hmm. but they were playing to both sides of the audience, the parents and the kids. And it's it was a great show. And he's like, I'm telling you, you'll love this show. And I started watching it because I trusted Scotty's sense of humor. I feel like Disney and uh, Cartoon Network have a real good sense now of how to make a, sh a show for two audiences. Um, because I, I there was one recently. I don't know if you ever watched it, but did you ever watch Gravity Falls on Disney? No it's it's a it's a huge like throwback horror type show with uh but it has the kids sensibilities and they don't go too dark with it until like later but there's a bunch of homages to like old horror or old like um kind of like serial stuff um and then they have just jokes in there that are one-time gags and there's uh one time where they're looking at a bunch of board games and one of the board games is called don't wake up stalin and it's just like it's just a random joke that like only you'd get in passing if you're an adult <laughs> Or they have an old Columbo show, but it's just about a duck who's Columbo, not like, <laughs> not like actual Columbo. So it's th stuff like that that I'm like, okay, cool. Like this is for my age, for older, for everybody. That's awesome. That's great. Um, so I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I just have some quick round questions of sure. uh, just to get to know a bit better, and then uh, we can wrap up. Uh, so Q and A session. Real okay. Fast. Do you remember the first comic you ever owned? One of them. Uh... I do remember the first one I bought with my own money was an issue of action comics where Superman had a new identity and he was Chris Delbart, the Wolf of Wall Street. And there's a, uh, a fast speed uh, cover shot of Superman flying through a window and then putting a suit on, but he has brown hair, a mustache and glasses. And it's like time for my new identity, Chris Delbart, Delbart the Wolf of Wall Street. So, so that's the first one I remember buying with my own money. Before that, um, I would definitely be handed uh, my uh, older brother and sister and, and cousins uh, comic books. So, uh, and again, sadly, I can remember, I didn't buy them with my own money, but I do remember the 12 cent era. Mm -hmm. I started buying comics when they were 20 cents. Um, and why did you go into radio? Like what um, led you there? Oh man, radio was magic to me. Radio, especially news radio uh, was the internet of its day because it was 24 seven information. And whether it was three o'clock in the morning, there were live people telling you what was happening in the world at that moment. And also I would dial twist much as we surf online right now. Mm -hmm. And especially at night, pull in stations from other States or my uncles had shortwave radio. So I listened to, you know, BBC radio and at, you know, it was always six hours ahead. So it was midnight local time, but it was six in the morning, London time. And that just fascinated me. And it, it just opened up the world to me 
in a way, and I just wanted to be a part of it. So uh, that's, you know, yeah, I was, I was working at my high school radio station as a kid and, uh, you know, really never looked back and uh, spent 30 years, uh, well, God, actually going back to downstate radio, 30 years in Chicago radio and uh, 35 years in uh, professional radio starting in uh, central Illinois back in 1985. Uh, and next question is, what's currently your favorite film? Uh, the ones from last year, I would say Ford versus Ferrari was my favorite film of last year. I just thought it was great. I was always a big fan. I'm not a big, it's interesting. I'm not, a, I was as a kid, a big fan of watching things like uh, Daytona and the Indianapolis 500 and all that stuff. But I really loved the old movies like Grand Prix mm -hmm. and uh, Le Mans and films like that. And I really, I mean, and it's, it's a real story. It's a true story, Ford versus Ferrari. And I think it is such an interesting story. And I, I think they shot it beautifully and they really captured it. And I've watched documentaries about the real story along with uh, the film itself. So that was, that was far and away my favorite film. And I would say second, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. People have a problem with Quentin Tarantino's weird endings and little rewrites of history and things like that. It doesn't bother me. That's just, that's just his style. And that's mm -hmm. just his way of reminding us all, this is a movie, this is a fantasy. And if uh, I were in control of the universe, which I am as the filmmaker, I would have liked to have seen it happen this way. And that's why I love Inglorious Bastards. And that's why I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, there's a, a real quick tangent. I've been, I've been binging sure. uh, video essays on uh, horror movies. But the, this guy covered Once Upon a Time, though, during that binge. And he talked about how, in a lot of ways, it was Quentin's way of showing what would happen if that tragedy didn't take place. And if that tragedy didn't take place, the golden age of Hollywood would have continued for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, I think it, so. It, I, it, I think it, you're right. And it's since it, that tragedy brought horror to the golden age of uh, Hollywood that it was trying to ignore all that time, it really, it changed the landscape of what films were being made after that. That is true. And he is very cognizant of that. I've heard Tarantino say that the film Rocky ended that cynical 70s period of movie making mm -hmm. that really produced incredible films, top films like Serpico and... Um, you know, uh, French Connection and things like that to really edgy stuff like, you know, Boys in the Band uh, exploring homosexuality and just a lot of gritty things. But Rocky had this great happy ending and all of a sudden the, the audience responded and the studios are like, oh, we forgot that we, get, we should do enough with real life. Let's have some happy endings happen. People need that. And yeah. that really did kind of change movie making in, back in 1975, 76 when the first Rocky movie came out. So no, Tarantino really does beyond the obvious and loving films as much as he does. He understands why they clicked with audiences and why they were important. Uh, and one last question. Uh, what's one guest that you still want to have on Word Blue that you haven't been able to snag yet? You know, with Stan Lee for a long time and sadly he passed away. Yeah. Um, Jim Steranko was a longtime hope and I luckily got him last year. And that was, a, that was even though it was like a live, that was a great episode. Oh, great. You know, honestly, man, I love Jim. Jim, Jim was a magician before he was a comic book writer and I think is still a showman and likes to tell his stories his way. And you just get out of the way and you let him tell it. Um, and I've heard that story a million times. If that's the only time I ever speak to Jim Steranko, I can, I can rest easy. Um, I'd like to get Grant on a, on a solo conversation, Grant Morrison still. Um, I think that would be great. I'd love to talk to Alan Moore. I don't know if he'd be willing to talk to me. Um, and I would, I get why Alan Moore 
is frustrated with the superhero world. And it's, I don't think it's with the readers. I think it is with the two publishers. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've heard me make this analogy, but I'll do it on your show. It's like with Watchmen and what happened with him with DC and in even compounded worse in the 90s and early 2000s with Wildstorm and America's Best Comics and what he was doing there. It's like he, he built the home of his dreams with his stories at DC. And, and think of it like uh, being a guy that finally is making enough money that he can build a house, his dream house. And he's mm -hmm. got his dream backyard and he's got a pool and he's got an incredible bar and barbecue. And it's everything he always wanted. And then he has a divorce with his wife and that's who you know DC represents. And every time he sees people that say how much they love him, they wanna talk about the house. And it's like, you know, then Watchmen is the house, basically. And it's like, yeah, listen, man, I love what you're doing right now. But how about that dream house, man? Wasn't that amazing? I mean, you, yeah. the pool and the barbecue and the bar. And it's just like, you know, I've been doing things for 30 years since then, 35 years. Can we talk about something else? And and I can appreciate his frustration with that. So um, I love Alan Moore. And I, and I really respect him as a storyteller. And he's been really, it's interesting because his focus has been very much on where he grew up in the history of uh, – North, uh, you know, Northern England and everything where he grew up. And uh, he's, he continues to write incredible stories. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever he writes, I'm, I'm always happy to read it. So yeah, I would say, I would probably say uh, Alan Moore and Graham Morrison of the, of the two that I haven't had a chance to talk to. And I've been very fortunate, 15 years. Today actually is the 15th anniversary. Oh, wow. Evelyn. Yeah, May 10th. Absolutely. So uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky. And I think getting in as early as I did and uh, having my radio experience afforded me the opportunity to do interviews my way and uh, maybe do them a little bit more experienced than some of my, uh, you know, uh, peers in, uh, in podcasting. Yeah. And um, honestly, John, like, again, if it wasn't for you, I really don't think I would be doing this right now. But not only that, like the insights I have on the comic industry and the writing insights I get from the writers you get on, but even the artist insights, like that's so important. And I wouldn't have half of it if it wasn't just for listening to your show. Oh, thanks, man. Again, I mean, it's having been a reader literally since I was able to read. So, I mean, I'm, I'm 55. So really, it's been like probably 50 years of reading comics or pretty close to it. And, um, and then also just what's happening in media and specifically in comics. It's a very, very interesting time. And it's, it started about 22 years ago with the first Blade movie coming mm -hmm. out from Marvel. Um, but ever since then, uh, it's fun to talk to the, even the more experienced guys. Like when I talked to Walter Simonson and say, did you ever think a 24 seven news cycle would be here for comic books? What mm -hmm. is that like now? I mean, cause you know, again, Walt was a guy breaking into comics in the early seventies or Neil Adams, another guy like that, or Denny O'Neill, um, that are older and stuff. I mean, it's, it really is interesting. And I, I like asking those questions as much as what's Batman going to do next or you know, I mean, some, yeah. of, some of the obvious of who, you know, who would win a fist fight, you know, Hulk, Hulk or Superman. It's like, okay. I mean, I'm entertained with those stories as well. And especially when they do those kind of crossover stories, but I, I, again, it's what's behind the inspiration, what, what interests them and, and makes them want to create the stories that they create. That's what I really look for in work balloon interviews. Yeah, and like as you said, like with the twenty-four hour news cycle, just for comics, <laughs> I've been thinking about recently. Someone created a CBR headline generator, 
Okay. And, and one of them that post, I think Mitch uh, shared it on Twitter. It was uh, the new Deadly Wasp and what and their weird connection to Joe Quesada. And I'm like, oh yeah, that that might be a headline one of these days. That might actually be a headline. <laughs> um, it could. So again, thank you, John, for uh, being on the show. Um, I'll let, give you the space now to just plug Word Balloon and every aspect that it has. Oh, thanks, man. It's uh, Word Balloon. Um, I've got, uh, you know, wordballoon.com. That's the website. I'm a couple days behind, but I will be spending today uh, updating what I've put out there. I'm on the Spreaker podcast network. They're very kind. They host my bandwidth. And um, if you go to uh, wordballoon.com, you can find shows there. I'm at every podcast platform there is, iTunes, uh, all the Android platforms as well, all the Apple uh, platforms. I'm on Spotify. I'm not on iHeartRadio because they were a competitor to CBS radio where I've been working for the last couple of years. And I didn't want to put my show there. I might now, I'm not sure. I I really, I haven't made my mind up, but uh, yeah, you know, any, anywhere you, where you can find podcasts, you should be able to find word balloon. And um, like I now have a YouTube channel. I've only been doing video for about the last five or six weeks. And uh, you know, I'm the the numbers are low, but that's okay. I mean, they're growing. And Mm -hmm. I would say with your show too, Jesse, just be patient because Mm -hmm. I got my I got my listeners one one uh, one listener at a time, and I mean you know it's you know have faith in what you're doing. You you, you really I, I've appreciated this conversation. Uh, you're you're conducting a conversation the way I would have done it, and uh, left yourself open to talk about topics beyond your list of questions and everything because that really it's listening. That's mm-hmm. where it becomes a conversation rather than an interview. And and that's what this show is just about is just like the conversation that comes with the territory. I feel like there's Sounds so like it, man. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, there's so much that I feel like most uh, interview shows kind of leave on the wayside. But I don't know comics. I'm I'm 26 at this point, but I think my I, my parents say my third word was Batman. They took me to see uh, Batman Forever when I was not even one, and so like okay. it, it's been a part of my life for forever. <laughs> so that's awesome man that's uh, fantastic no and again you get it i mean this is uh there's like i said there i also think it's good that you're doing it by yourself mm -hmm. because i think when you have co-hosts i always this is my example always if you've got like you know three hosts and one guest and the first host asks and says how'd you break into comics and the guest will say well it was about a year or so after i got out of jail for committing manslaughter (laughs) and i spent 10 years in jail and i decided i wanted to do something creative and then the second interview will say, what's your favorite color? And it's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear about his favorite color. Tell me about the manslaughter. What? I think we're leaving something on the table there. And yeah. I think when it's just one-on-one, you're able to be receptive. And, but, but when you have, and I, and I find this too, when you have two guests and a lot of times the publisher will be like, hey, great. You know, like for instance, CC with the best intentions was like, we're going to have you on with Liam and, and, and Grant. And I'm like, oh, I really want to talk to them separately because I don't want a short shrift one over the other. And Liam is a really smart guy and he writes novels as well as writes his own comics. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to short shrift him and I knew going in how to handle it. But again, it's like, oh, I could spend those 20 minutes of this 40 minute interview with Liam and, uh, with Grant and ask a million more questions. And I'd say the same thing about Liam. So it's hard. And that's mm-hmm. why I think one-on-one is always best in terms of having this kind of conversation. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's listening. And like, again, check out John's Patreon. Like, support him if you like these kind of shows because john puts out a bit more than i do for sure but also like he has a whole 15 year back catalog now that's true uh, all these shows to listen to and if you just support him for even a dollar it's it's, it means a lot 
It absolutely does. No, thanks, Jesse, for reminding me of my Patreon page. Yeah. Patre- Patreon.com slash Word Balloon, all one word. Um, and uh, yeah, that's great. And my YouTube channel is also Word Balloon, one word. But uh, no, thank you. And thank you, everybody that uh, is listening, that is aware of the show. And even even listening helps support the show. And just if you like uh, what you hear, let a friend know. I mean, and it's really word of mouth is still the best publicity I can get. And 15 years later, I'm still getting new listeners that are just discovering Word Balloon and uh, enjoying the archive. So thank you. Yeah. And uh, again, thanks, John, for being on. Jesse, my pleasure. Great conversation, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, no, not a problem. It was a pleasure for me, too. Everybody, it's Jesse again, coming back in at the end to plug some of the podcast social media links and give some credits for uh, what you hear on the podcast and see on your feed. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Comic Books Pod. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash comic books matter. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com at comic books uh, slash comic books matter. Uh, only a dollar tier right now, and it just gives me your support. But soon we'll have some new content on there for you. Uh, you can reach me by email at comicbooksmatter at gmail.com if you have any questions for guests, if you have any stories about comics that impacted you, or if you want to be a guest on the show logo by my friend steven he's great has nothing to promote but if you see steven tell him he's great and thanks for the logo the theme is joy in the restaurant by david zazetzi and i found it on freemusicarchive.org thanks everybody and i hope you have a good rest of your weekend